I'm hoping you haven't already forgotten Fred's talk last night because this is part two. <laughs> last night, Fred was speaking about mana, the conceit of self. So this evening, what I would like to speak about is mana papancha, which is essentially the story we tell about the conceit of self. Sounds like a blockbuster title, doesn't it? You can see people turning up in droves. <laughs> so many of you have done retreats before. We'll, of course, be very familiar with this Pali word, papancha, which again doesn't translate easily into English, but essentially it describes the mind's storytelling capacity, the proliferation of streams of thought based upon certain attitudes or tendencies or confusion that distorts again and again our capacity to see things as they actually are. That's the translation of papancha. <laughs> and I think if there is <clears throat> one Pali word that you ever want to remember, it's this one, papancha. It kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Papancha. Mm -hmm. If you are not familiar with the word papancha, you will certainly be familiar with the experience of papancha. The proliferation, the thought loops that repeat seemingly endlessly, the ongoing commentary that we have about life, that we have about others, that we have about ourselves, those loops we engage in, and now you have a word for it. <coughs> now, these stories have themes or emotional tones. Sometimes we're more familiar with those themes than we would really like to be. We see the spectrum of stories that we tell that have their roots in anxiety and fear and worry, the ways that we rehearse the future that hasn't yet arrived, the sometimes unnecessary planning. Think about it. How many thoughts do you really think you need to get out of here? <laughs> How many have you had? <laughs> the worrying about what might be, but the worrying about what other people think about us. I mean, Papa Pancha is a habit that can seize upon almost anything. You know, think about your relationship to interview groups during this retreat. How many thoughts you can have the moment you see your name go up on an interview group list. You know, what am I going to say? What's the right thing to say? You know, have I got the most brilliant question that's never been asked in the Dharma world before? <laughs> and what kind of impression am I going to make? That kind of worrying... And then, of course, there's what happens after the interview group, too. I sounded so stupid, you know, and I forgot entirely that question I was going to ask, you know, and I, you know, what do other people think about me? So that's one stream of thinking, the anxiety, worry-based stories. Of course, then there is the aversion-based papancha, how much we think uh, quite a lot about what we don't like and don't want and can't accept the irritations that plague our day, the amount of thoughts we can have about the deer fly that seems to have our name on it, the pain in our knee, the people who have injured us, and of course all the aversion-based stories, one or two of them, that we have about ourselves. There's craving-based papancha, the stories we have about what's for lunch. You know, the kind of meditation experience we think we deserve, 
the fantasies we entertain, the ways that we idealize and romanticize and construct the perfect moment. There's views and opinions based papancha, and we can sure have a lot of them. <laughs> Political views and social views and world views. Essentially, we really do think quite a lot. And we see how the most innocuous, um, most innocuous sense impression, most innocuous contact with a sight or a sound or a smell can or sensation can just seem to trigger this waterfall of thinking, remembering, commenting, imagining, explaining. Now, we don't always mind this. At times it can seem quite benign, and at times we even sort of enjoy it. I mean, it's lots more fun to spend 45 minutes in a juicy fantasy than be with the breath. <laughs> you know, it just it just seems like a lot you know, it's hardly a choice. <laughs> but we need to recognize that this habit of papancha of course is not always benign because I'm sure we've all experienced a very painful and tormenting papancha that just won't stop when we seem to get caught in these loops of charged and obsessive thinking. And I think what's really important to recognize is that papancha is a tendency. It's a habit, and it's a habit that has no conscience whatsoever. So we should never deceive ourselves into believing that we can delightfully and playfully engage in endless fantasies about another person or about our vacation, and then somehow imagine that we can politely say no to the onslaught of aversion, aversive thinking or judgmental thinking. Papancha has no conscience. So the habit of it is a habit that can seize upon anything, fearful thinking, Sometimes people regard this kind of storytelling as just a nuisance to get rid of or to concentrate our way out of. Now, in reality, papanchi is actually not something to be overcome, but something to be understood. This whole tendency of papancha proliferation teaches us so much about Oh, the ways that we can cause such affliction for ourselves also teaches many of the lessons about ending suffering. Papancha teaches us so much about the ways that we can almost imprison our hearts, our minds in contractedness. But it also teaches us that we hold the keys to those prisons in our own hands. Papancha, in its deepest sense, teaches us the way that our personal world, our personal reality, is being constructed and created and fabricated moment to moment. And when we understand this, of course, this understanding of how our personal world is constructed, of course, is also the key to finding our way out of fabrication and learning to align our hearts, align our minds and our lives with the essential truths of each moment. Because it's in that alignment that we do find peace, that we do find kindness and compassion and freedom. According to the Buddha, the mind that is lost in papancha and in fabrication is always in a state of agitation and actually irritation. The papancha is an irritation. We we need to check this out, of course, in our own experience. Also, the Buddha also said that the mind that obsesses, and please be aware in this tradition and teaching, the way the Buddha used the word obsessives is 
kind of slightly a higher bar than the way we use it, you know, like thinking the same thought more than once is obsession. So the Buddha said the mind that obsesses becomes agitated and the mind that is agitated is far from freedom and the mind that doesn't obsess is not agitated and the mind that is not agitated is close to freedom. The much of this path and this practice is cultivating a non-agitated heart, a non-agitated mind that is close to freedom. So this evening I'd like to speak about a very specific form of papancha proliferation that I mentioned earlier on, close to our hearts, which is this mana papancha, the story of ourselves, the story of who we are, that is actually a central thread in all papancha. In a way, we could say that this central thread of papancha, the story of I, the story of me, is the root of all other threads of papancha. It's kind of what holds together our story about life, our story about the world, our story about other people. Now, we could expend and do expend a good deal of energy calming the story of this, that, and the other. I mean, sometimes it really feels like a major achievement to be able to walk into the dining room without making a drama about lunch. Seems like a major achievement to be able to listen to our restless neighbor without running through these endless stories of judgment and construction about who they are. So calming these these storms of agitation that arise here and there is, of course, never a waste of effort. I mean, learning to calm agitation in any moment we can is wonderful. Yet, if we leave this fundamental papancha, the story of me, uninvestigated and unexamined, not something just to be calmed, but to be understood, then there always kind of lies within us the fertile ground for storytelling and agitation pretty much about everything. It sort of remains. So look back, if you can, on your thought streams today. Kind of if you can remember them. (laughs) (laughs) And without any embarrassment or judgment, please get a sense of how many of them were about who. Me. I used to be like this. I'd like to be like this. I want this. I need this. I don't want this. I like this. I don't like this. What will happen to me tomorrow? What will I be like? The thoughts about my body, my mind, my emotions, everything I see and hear and touch. What is happening to me? You know, my plans, my opinions, my judgments. (sighs) exhausting, isn't it? Just exhausting. Now, some of these agitations can feel very momentary. They're kind of like fireflies in the night. You know, they light up for a moment, and then they just fade away. And some of these agitations and stories are really quite familiar. It's like they have a long history. It's almost... Do you ever get the sense like you sort of carry around your own museum? (laughs) You know, and every once in a while you walk through the room of your childhood memories, you know, and then you walk through another room of the, you know, the room of your injuries, all the people who've injured you, you know, and then you sort of have a museum room of your hopes, you know, and your dreams and fantasies. Then there's the memory room. You know, it's, so, it, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's kind of like we walk through these different rooms, like we carry this whole museum with us. 
And of course, many of these, these walks we take, we've, we've walked down that path a lot of times. You know, there's a lot of circular thinking that goes on in Manapapancha. Mana you know, a lot of very familiar thinking about, as, as Fred was talking about last night, comparing, evaluating, judging as being the better or same as or worse. But generally, it's me at the center. And of course, underlying these thoughts, what we don't always see is a kind of ideology or the belief that this is who I am, that this is me, this is mine, this belongs to me, this underlying belief in the centrality of self, I, me, constant enduring. Now, many of you who will be familiar with um, the, the kind of spiritual climate in which the Buddha lived and taught will be aware that the Buddha spent much of his life, his teaching life, questioning this, the prevailing view at the time, the prevailing belief system of the time that of the eternal essence or the enduring, independent self. And his much, you know, one of the most radical teachings, of course, of the Buddha was the teaching of non or not self. It was very liberating, very radical in his time. It is interesting that today, too, that this teaching of non-self is also the place, of course, where you know, B- Buddhist psychology finds an accord with, you know, physics, with neuroscience, with psycho- you know, contemporary psychology. Now, what the Buddha suggested that is, is you know, because he didn't teach this again as another ideology. What the Buddha suggested is that if we looked carefully and deeply into our own experience into our own body-mind process that we may very well discover, as he discovered, that there is no driver at the controls, that there is no pilot in the cockpit, that there is no one who is abiding, unchanging, and independent. Now, we may also begin to see quite clearly and deeply for ourselves that it is not even us, I, who I'm telling the story about who I am, but rather the story or mana papancha, this proliferation of distorted thinking, is actually telling me who I am. That's so interesting to me, that I may not be telling the story, that the story is telling me. I'll go into this in a minute that this idea of the centrality of me inhabiting the center of all experience is very much like an optical illusion, like the illusion of the sun orbiting the earth. This is the best metaphor I can think of. You get up in the morning, you know, you see the sun come up over there and it goes down over there really looks like it's going around the earth, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it just looks, that looks how it is. You know, so what our sense stars are telling us is, of course, something that we know is actually only an appearance, only an illusion. We all know that the earth orbits the sun. We're in agreement here, I think. <laughs> but it doesn't look that way looks completely the opposite. So, this illusion of self, independent, self-existence, is very, very similar. The world is orbiting around me. If you reflect on a moment and whether I am telling the story about who I am or whether the story is telling me, just, just think about this. Perhaps you come into the hall and the sitting doesn't quite go the way you wanted it to or expected it to. 
or the sitting you come into doesn't go quite the way the last one did, which was so calm. So, the calmness and the happiness of a couple of hours ago seems to be replaced by, you know, this preoccupation with what's going on in my knee, you know, the irritation or an unsettled mind. And you, you see the story begin, don't you? What's happening? What did I do wrong? I was calm. I may never be calm again. I'm obviously no good at this. I'm worse than everybody else at this. In fact, I'm writing my meditative future of endless sittings going up to my deathbed of pain and agitation. It's always going to be like this. I'm a consistent failure. Essentially, I'm inadequate. Now, am I telling the story in that moment? Or is the story that is being told the story of Manapapancha is the story actually telling me who I am in that moment. Are the thoughts that are being produced actually shaping, writing the story of who I am in this moment? Give another example. You go into the dining room and the person that you sat across from all week long has moved. They're sitting somewhere else. So at first you can feel a little bemused, perhaps even a little shocked. You know, I thought we had a good thing going here. <laughs> sitting across from each other in companionable silence, enjoying our meals together. And then the thoughts begin, don't they? Maybe I've offended them. Maybe they dislike my table manners. Maybe they dislike me. No surprise. Lots of rejections in my life. Now, am I telling the story? Or is the story in that moment telling me who I am? You see that manapapancha, the proliferation of thought around, the, around self, also creates a sense of time, a sense of continuum. I used to be, I was, which gives evidence to support the reality of this contractedness in the moment, the, the, the contractedness, the shape of me in the moment, which again is shaping how I see myself to be in the future, this self, this me, continuing into the future. This illusion is very compelling, you know, that behind my face, behind every experience, every event, I am a continuum, a self. But if we stand still for a moment, and it really is so important to stand still, to step out of the perpetual agitation of trying to fix and improve and overcome and get rid of ourselves, what do we actually see when we look at this body-mind experience, this life experience? What do we actually see? I think if we look really closely, what we actually see is a universe of process and conditions. Process and conditions, endlessly interfacing. Day turns into night, the earth orbits, there is birth, there is death, winter turns into spring, flowers bloom, only to fade, only to bloom again. We see our loved ones and difficult people pass through the seasons of their life. When we look into our bodies, we see process, don't we? We see our hearts beating, blood moving, lungs breathing, feet stepping. Sensations appearing and passing. Thoughts running through consciousness. We see, if we look at our past, all the, the moments we have lived, the things we have loved, the things we have loathed, 
now a collection of memories. Nothing in the universe is standing still. Nothing in the universe is static. And in truth, life depends on process, doesn't it? When process ends, that's what we call our death. Without process, we don't breathe, we don't love, we don't respond, we don't, we don't care. We see this process in our emotions. Moments of sadness turning into unexpected at times, moments of delight. Love that can turn into disappointment, grief to acceptance, resistance to compassion. In truth, when we look at our body-mind experience, process pervades all things, all sights, all sounds, all taste, all touch, all through our mind. Life is movement. Life is change. We also see, when we look closely, we see a world of conditions. Did you ever have a kaleidoscope when you were a child? And you look into the kaleidoscope and you just change it and you see the way all of these different shapes come together to form all of these different patterns just with a little flick of the wrist. What we too see too is shapes and conditions coming together to form particular mandalas, particular patterns, particular experiences in our own life, in the world around us. We see this so clearly in the world, in the weather, don't we? That certain atmospheric conditions come together. And so <coughs> to get today we have sun. Tomorrow we might rain, have rain. You know, a few weeks ago they had a tornado. You know, the conditions of cooks and food really need to, and intentionality really need to dance together for us to have lunch. Our life is a record of conditions merging together to create particular experiences and to create me. All the different shapes of me that I have experienced in my life. Have you ever done like, like I've done, ever looked through a family photo album? Isn't it amazing? Like I sort of remember what it was like to be a child, but it's not who I am, you know, it's like a different me. When I look at myself as a hippie, it, it doesn't look like me anymore, you know? <laughs> kind of looks sort of different, you know? We have a photo up in the staff dining room today of Fred and I together in India in 1970. You wouldn't recognize us. In the <laughs> we look a little different and actually often even see and think a little differently some ways than we do right now. But we see how our life is a record of these conditions merging together to create a particular shape in our life. We may or may not have had a loving family or a, a good education. We may or may not have been born into a society that is war-torn or at peace. We may or may not have inherited genes that contribute to our own health or ill health in this moment. We may or may not have been fortunate enough to have conditions of support or safety or acceptance and we are a child of conditions. Not only of the conditions of the past, but we are a child of the conditions of the moment. And life as we know it is this matrix of conditions. But it's not all predetermined or fatalistic in any way. We're not helpless because we are also part of that matrix of conditions, aren't we? We have the capacity to bring into every, every, every mandala of conditions. Also the conditions of wise effort, of, of intention, of good or ill will, of kindness or rage. Our every act, our every word, our every thought, our every, every choice is splintering into thousands of consequences that we cannot always see the effect of. And what we do see in our life in this 
matrixes, mandalas or conditions that change and shape. That without the basis of intentionality and kindness and understanding, we do create further conditions for pain and distress. But with kindness and understanding and integrity, we bring the conditions into all of these shapes that also can contribute to a life and a world of greater kindness and greater integrity and intentionality. Now, the extraordinary piece, I think the quite extraordinary piece in, in this, this world of, of interfacing process of conditions is to imagine that I, that I myself am exempt. That I myself somehow it stands outside, independent, substantial, in control, in charge. It hardly seems a logical thought, does it? And it really isn't. It's a belief. It's a belief system. It's an illusion. It's an image. It is what, as Fred referred to last night, in Buddhist teaching, this is called the conceit of self. The delusion of an independent, separate self. Now we can look at this belief, this illusion, this idea of independent self through the same eyes of insight that we would look at the world of process and conditions. And when we look at this illusion, this sense of self through those eyes, we see the unarguable truth of process and conditions within this particular belief, this particular illusion. I have to tell you, this is rather countercultural suggestion. When we live in a culture where there's so much pressure to be a self, you know, we ask little babies who hardly figured out how to breathe, what they're going to be when they grow up, you know, who they're going to be when they grow up. They've hardly even found their feet yet. You know, we're asking them to imagine the self that they should be. It is so much pressure. But when we see the, the terrible suffering that orbits around the belief in self in terms of blame and fear and shame and rage and judgment and the loneliness of an independent self-existence, to say that, the sort of intrinsic loneliness of the belief in an independent, separate self. When we look at that painfulness, of that sense of limitation and imprisonment, I think we would see and, and know that to really end this torment and pain, we're really asked to ease the grip, ease the grip of self-referencing and self-centralizing. Now, can we entertain the possibility that the idea of self, of an independent self, is in truth also a process and a matrix of conditions. Not a noun, but a verb. A verb. Hmm? We're not, certainly not, please be very clear about this, we are certainly not in search of no self. The Buddha never taught no self. And, you know, that one consonant at the end, N, is huge. You know, because we're not in search of no self, but non-self or not-self. Now, I would really ask us to examine this process of selfing and how this process of selfing becomes a noun, how we create a kind of entity, a centrality, out of a process, because that's how torment and struggle is born. Now, if you reflect today of how much you might have been aware of selfing, being processed and shaped, you know, you might have experienced contented self, agitated selfing, peaceful selfing, boring selfing, anguished selfing, generous selfing, you know, worried selfing. Notice how the self or the idea of self of the moment Notice when it shapes around difficult, sometimes unskillful, 
or painful thoughts or emotions or irritations or difficult uh, uh, memories. Notice when the sense of selfing shapes around the difficult or the unpleasant. You notice how loud its voice is? Like it really shouts, really tells a lot of stories. Has a lot of proliferation, much louder. And have you noticed that when the sense of selfing uh, is, is quieter, when there's calmness, when there's stillness, when there's contentment, when there's ease, when there's generosity, have you noticed that the sense of the voice of selfing is much quieter? Like you hardly even notice you're there. You hardly notice that you're there until, of course, <laughs> the next moment comes when I want to keep this. This is the self I want to be. And then the story, of course, turns up in volume again. Have you noticed, too, in our lives, in the moments of really quite unhesitating compassion or kindness or connectedness or sensitivity, it's almost as if no one is home until ownership begins. Then the story of selfing begins. And you notice the difficult times of real you know, judgment or despair or disappointment. I really feel like I'm home. Now, the, Buddha's, the Buddha taught that the idea of self is a construction, a fabrication, a shape, that the self of the moment is actually a process of identifying and clinging and holding and isolating, and that the shape of the self of the moment is shaped by that which is held to, that which is grasped hold of. I think we can see this in our own experience when anxiety is taken hold of, you know, I feel anxious. You know, when fear is taken hold of, I feel fearful. You know, when irritation is taken hold of, I'm irritated. So you can see how the shaping of selfing in every moment is really the shaping that is born of clinging and holding. When we turn an interactive in an interaction of process and conditions really into a view, in, into a view. So we see how this takes place in our world. You know, sometimes it is the body that is clung to, a sensation, an appearance, an illness, a pain. I, I often encourage people to do a little mirror practice if you want to see the process of selfing turn into a noun. Spend a little time in front of the mirror. Sometimes it's neutral. Very often, oh, look. <laughs> <laughs> that hair in my nostril wasn't there yesterday, you know. When did I start sprouting foliage out of my ears, you know? <laughs> I look like my mother. <laughs> my father. You see it, don't you? It's kind of like hardly neutral. Isn't this so interesting? The body is a process, but when something is isolated, you feel the surge of selfing and the arising of the reaction to what is isolated, to what is clung to. I'm old. I'm ill. I'm wrinkled. I'm young. I am. It's me. It's who I am. It's the story of mana papancha. Has fuel to burn. Sometimes feeling is isolated, is clung to. You know, I like this. This is really pleasant. I want this. I feel good. I feel bad. I'm bored. You know, and the story and the reaction. Sometimes perception is clung to, you know, our interpretations of the world, and this is how it is. This is terrible. This is lovely. This is beautiful. This is ugly. I am reacting to that. Sometimes tendencies, patterns are clung to, I need to fix, I need to do. Consciousness can be isolated and clung to. The words, the self-referencing, I see, I know, I am, this is me. So with each moment of selfing, each moment of clinging, you can feel the contractedness, 
You can feel the agitation arise with the clinging. You can see the view of self being shaped. The view of self being shaped. And have you noticed the amnesic quality in the views of self that are shaped? Quite amnesic. You know, the sad self has completely forgotten the happy self. You know, the happy self has completely forgotten the possibility of ever being anything else. You know, the aversive self has completely forgotten the generous self. How could it not? Because the self is not some enduring fixture that is carrying forward this memory feature. It is shaped by clinging in the moment. It's shaped by clinging in the moment. Myself is a story. Keep telling me who I am and how the world is. Now, the Buddha never encouraged the effort to negate the self or to suppress it. You know, the third noble truth of awakening is not the noble truth of no self. Not the noble truth of no self. It is the ennobling truth of ending suffering, of ending distortion, of ending, ending confusion, born of investigating our views of reality, our views of self, and how it is shaped moment to moment, questioning the authority and the authenticity of the stories that we tell ourselves and the encouragement to envisage the peace and the joy of putting down the burden of self-referencing and clinging. And I think more than we appreciate, we have actually tasted the happiness and freedom of non-clinging and non-selfing. You know, nobody goes through their whole day clinging every moment and selfing every moment. You know, I think we would all fall over with exhaustion. There are far many more moments of non-selfing than we ever appreciate. I mean, have you ever sat mindful of breathing, mindful of sitting, and just forgot you were the breather? Just forgot you were the sitter? And the breathing just breathes itself? Have you ever found yourself just reaching out with sensitivity and generosity and just completely forgotten that I am so generous? There are far many more breaks, gaps in this continuum than we imagine. And I think it is so important to notice those gaps in what we see as being the continuum. They are a taste. Still, there is much to be understood about wrong view. Perhaps we are not a continuum, a singular, a unified entity. Doesn't mean we are nothing. Doesn't mean we are nothing. We breathe, we create, we love, we care, we live, and and we go through our lives in the most meaningful way that we can. Through this life of process and conditions, with as much grace and direction and compassion as we can. But this world of process and conditions is not just an external world. It is a world we are part of interfacing with, not standing outside, not observing, not even a unified observer. It is manapapancha, or or the story of selfing, that keeps the illusion of separation going. And this is what we're invited to examine. We ask ourselves the question, who am I? And perhaps we find ourselves telling the story of autobiographical events. Some suggest that the idea of self is no more than a collection of memories. We ask ourselves, who am I? And we might see that it's the story of what is being clung to, what is being identified that is being told. The story of clinging to emotion or thought or body events. And every moment of that clinging is a moment of misalignment with the way things actually are, which is process, fluid, changing, unfolding, 
conditions coming together in different shapes and forms and events. It's almost, <coughs> excuse me, as if every moment of clinging is really the endeavor to make something stand still. It's the endeavor to make, to create the illusion of something being fixed and being still because then we have a view and we can live in the view which feels safe. But those are also the moments when we find ourselves in trouble, struggling, narrating, explaining, reacting. How do we understand the freedom of non-self, the freedom of non-clinging, the freedom of alignment with the way things actually are? Well, first, what we have been doing here over these days, first we just begin to slow down the process, to calm down the process, then perhaps we begin to question our fascination, our enchantment with the stories that are told about the world, about I am, about you are, I am. We start to calm the papunches, start to calm the thinking, to cultivate collectedness and stillness. This too is a process. We cultivate our capacity to see the moment, to see all those moments when we move from freedom to contractedness, from openness to contractedness. You see that happen through the day, almost like your lungs breathing, that movement from opening to contracting, opening to contracting, happening so many moments in a single day. We see that movement of opening and contra- uh, to contractedness is, is a movement from being with what is to being identified with what is. That is the movement from opening to closing. The movement from being with what is to the movement of being identified with is. We see moment to moment the shaping of the moment, shaping the story of me. Essentially, in meditation practice, you know, we are not learning to let go of myself. That can be just another big story that I need to call, I need to let go. You could shout at yourself the whole day long to let go of myself, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But what does happen in practice is that we cultivate the conditions of spaciousness, of investigation, in which letting go happens all by itself. Liberating not only my self-story, but actually liberating all beings and liberating the world from our fixated views, which tries to pin people, things, the world in place. We cultivate the non-clinging heart perhaps by really beginning to see that we were probably always more and always less than we ever thought we were. Isn't that interesting? In some ways, you know, from the perspective of Buddhist psychology, and this, this sounds like a really, really unattractive proposition, that I am a heap of aggregates. You can feel your heart sink, can't you? That I am a bundle of aggregates. But in truth, we can't be described by any story based on isolation and clinging. No human being can be. I'm not just this unchanging center born of clinging. I'm not just the sum of aggregates. I'm not just a heap of aggregates held together by clinging. Some ways we're a lot less than we thought we were. You know, that's such a relief. That we don't have to move through the world endlessly protecting and defending, asserting. You know, because we see actually in reality a bundle of aggregates moving and shaping together dependent on conditions. So certain trying to get through our lives the best way we can. But we're also more than we ever thought we were. That in this world of 10,000 joys and sorrows, it's also the world of 10,000 stories 
of joy and sorrow in each life, in each life. And it's the only life we can live. Loving as deeply as we can, also grieving, also sad, delighting, but fluid, always fluid. I want to end with a story that Paul Brox tells. He's a neuropsychologist who's done much research into trying to find the self and didn't. (laughs) Happily, he says. But he wrote about this encounter with a 17-year-old boy when he was first training. And he said the teenager has suffered a catastrophic brain injury after falling down an empty lift shaft. The surgeons had done their best to piece him together, yet there was much that would never recover. The teen's face worked with relentless writhing in anger and dread. He would growl and grunt and sometimes shout but was incapable of speech. He sat contorted in his wheelchair, limbs twisted, a stream of saliva dribbling from the corner of his mouth. I feel pity for him, but also revulsion. I found him grotesque. Then I began to imagine what might remain of a self. I began to doubt there was anything at all going on behind that face. He should be allowed to die, I thought. And not just for his own sake. How did he look to his mother? Could she even bear to look? Then one day I happened to be around when his mother came to visit. I watched as she cradled his broken head in her arms. For the time that she was with him, but not much longer, an extraordinary transformation came over his face. It became still. The rage subsided. He seemed to regain his humanity. Here were two selves, not just a mother and a broken son. The whole was greater than the sum of the parts. As human beings, we have a remarkable capacity to inhabit a narrow world of self defined by clinging to parts. And as human beings, we also have a remarkable capacity for empathy, compassion, and freedom, greater than the sum of any parts. And I think in the Buddhist teaching, this is the third noble truth of awakening. Just a moment, quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.